the expression from the music inspired me so much to take risks and it inspired damn near the whole rap game. Hello again, I'm Adam Unz. You may know me as the host of The Opus, and now I'm bringing my own show, The Spark Parade, to the Consequence Podcast Network. I speak with artists and creatives about the cultural artifacts that spark their personal interest and creativity, whether it's music, books, movies, video games, or any other kind of art. I've never spoke about it in this amount of detail. I'm suddenly going, oh my God, I'm blowing my own mind here, Christ. It's, it's actually a giant part of my life. By talking about the things we love, we share and discover insights into our personality and the things that drive us. It's just magic, really. I mean, frustrating and it makes some people angry, but I don't think anyone's ever done anything like it. I speak with people like Connor Robers, Phoenix's Thomas Mars, Chris Gethard, Helen Hong, Adrian Young, and more, so their sparks of inspiration can start a fire in you. I'm grateful for those who continue to put our history and who we are as a people in the forefront and make you see it. Find the Spark Parade wherever you get your podcasts. Hey pod people, Engineer Adam here, jumping in for a quick second to let you know about the brand new all-in-one platform for all of you creative podcasters out there. Anchor makes it easier than ever to make a podcast. It's free to use and has all the creation tools you need to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Plus, Anchor will get your podcast set up on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever podcasts are found. Even better, Anchor helps you connect with sponsors, even if you're just starting out. It's the perfect choice for podcasters, so make sure to check it out. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. That's A-N-C-H-O-R dot F-M. Back to the show. The Opus, an exploration of legendary records and their ongoing legacy. Not just their history, but how this music continues to evolve. We're opening the vault on classic records upon re-release, delving into their inner workings and their lasting impact. Maybe you're a longtime fan and wants to go a little deeper. Maybe you're a first-time listener and you're curious to hear more. Either way, you're in the right place. Find us at Consequence of Sound or wherever you tune in to podcasts. Consequence Podcast Network. of you amazing pod people out there i'm your host once again leo phillips <laughs> my name is not once again it's leo phillips <laughs> but i'm here once again and this is this must be the gig it's a little podcast about the world of live music every single week i bring you a fascinating conversation from the beating heart of the live music and performance scene And that could really mean a musician or a festival founder, a choreographer, a comedian, an actor, really anyone obsessed with performance, not just of live music, performance in general, in the very way that we are. But before we dig into this week's fantastic interview with Andrew Bird, I know you saw who we have before you press play. Let's check in with our constant companion here at the TMBTG Studios, Engineer Adam. Hello. You say that faster every week, and I'm impressed oh, every week. It's just a skill that you've developed over these months. I think it's because I once watched an autocomplete, the wired autocomplete YouTube video. The second type of YouTube video that I watch. Yes. Because the first is Hi-Ho Kids, well, Try Things. We are in common on that. Oh, yeah, because we watch it together. <laughs> Michael Caine was on an autocomplete wide Ooh. interview, and basically every single question he was asked, he had like 10 minutes. He gave an answer 
for 10 minutes. And you've just... And been, I loved it. I loved it. You want to become the like, anti-Michael Caine. Let's go. Yeah. yeah. No, I love, I love, me, I love you know, me some Mickey Caney. If you're looking at morning, evening, white, black, Michael Caine, Lior Phillips, <laughs> yeah, these are just sure. the opposites, opposites that are. come up in the world. Cucumbers and Napolitana sauce. <laughs> Yes, I will agree with that. I will agree with that 100%. I will bring it up on this podcast once and once only. I saw somebody on one of those crowdsourcing stupid Twitter question things the other day, Mm -hmm. right? Yes. That I've I've taken the bait once before. We're talking social media. Here we go. Social media. Anyway, so somebody asked, what is your embarrassing home snack? Yes. And I wanted to answer, but I have so many. And some of those were not even that bad. They were civilized little barbell cheeses made into a sandwich. Like, none of that's it. Not, that's not embarrassing. That's not, that's not embarrassing. No. I'll tell you what's embarrassing. Cucumbers cut in the shape of a coin. Uh-huh. Particularly maybe between a dime and a quarter. Oh, yeah. You're getting your American coin sizes. <laughs> I'm, I'm into it. Yeah, yeah. Um, and pasta sauce over that that my friends would have gone viral do you <laughs> sure, I'm, yeah i'm sorry do you warm this I've had up sugar. what do you warm this up then this no snack? so cold pasta sauce <laughs> oh, <shit. laughs> i dived into that one i slinkied into you that said one no as if i were crazy also <laughs> listen you can't question... I've been freelancing since 2009. Yes. You can't question the snacks that I've come up with. I Some would say that they own me. Yes. I do not own the snacks. These are what you call desperation snacks. No. These are what you call life. <laughs> there are no meals anymore. It's just a day of cucumbers and it's disgusting and I'm so embarrassed. I'm admit I wouldn't admit it on Twitter, but I'm admitting it on my podcast. Yes. Now you this know. This is for you I love special you. friends. Yes. I feel so embarrassed because Andrew Bird fans are gonna be like, What the hell is going on here? So how have you been uh, since our little trip to Austin? Oh yeah, let's talk about that for a minute. I'm we- happy to. As a podcast, made a little jaunt down to South by Southwest, which was a wonderful experience. It really was. I was asked by the lovely Moose at Marauder, which is a boutique agency who um, run Independent Venue Week here in the U.S. Um, If you don't know anything about Independent Venue Week, just Google it. Basically, what it is, I will save you time. You're tired. It is a week-long celebration of the spirit of live music through independent venues. And the reason why I said yes is because not only were there other panelists that I really love, like Tessa Morris from the UC Theatre in Berkeley. She's the marketing director there. And James Moody, Moody, otherwise known as Moody, <laughs> who is not Moody at all, I gotta say. He's <laughs> yeah, he's a sweetie. Who uh, started Mohawk in Austin, mm-hmm. which That legendary venue. And they were all panelists, and I was moderating an amazing panel on independent venues. Something you said in that panel, which I was so struck by, and I agree completely, 100%, is that one of the first things you do when you go to a new place is you go to their independent venues to really get an idea of what the city is about. It's the and best that's way. So, that's so amazing. Well, there's three landmarks. So you go to a bookstore, a cinema, and 
maybe those are just the three things that I really love. No, I'm with you 100%. So we discussed on the panel, um, and obviously, shout out to anybody who was there. Um, there was such a warm audience and to the extent that I made fun of every single person who asked a question. <laughs> I think that was unusual for a South by Southwest panel, but it was very fitting well, for what there was we... a mic. Okay, the let's visual let's map out the visuals for our listeners. There was a room, a panel on a stage, very uncomfy, right? You know, kind of teacher. I, I felt it felt comfy to me. It felt comfy, right? And then there was a microphone on a stand a lone microphone mm-hmm. on a stand in the middle of the aisle in the middle of the room so if you wanted during the q a portion which was the last 10 minutes of the panel if you wanted to ask a question you had to remove yourself from your comfortable warm seat and get up and saunter across the room and ask your question and in that process i thought it was hella funny <laughs> to make light of the way in which strangers who were at the panel and had been sitting for 45 minutes walked it's like when you're sitting for two hours in a movie and then you get up and your legs are like uh uh-uh, uh there was we're some, not done sitting there was some moseying there was some sauntering there it was, was beautiful. some it was uh, a great, galloping I, wish I, I have the montage in my mind yeah, absolutely. and i wish i could just take it out with one of those harry potter spells well <laughs> anyway. you might not be able to do that for our audience but there's a chance that We'll be able to be presenting you a recording of that panel in a future episode. We're working hard to see if we can get that uh, excavated and edited yeah. and produced for you. Hoping, fingers crossed, that we can get that to you maybe as early as next week. So keep keep listening. It's going to be a great one. It was really important to chat about the economic models that survive in an independent venue realm. Balancing, obviously, community building and succeeding as an individual thriving as a non-profit as well and then another thing that we chatted about was how communities involve small and large independent venues alike so the misconception about how independent means small and i love that conversation so tune in in a few weeks for that chat but without further ado let's introduce our guest this week who has a new album coming out on friday we're two days away from the album drop that's pretty exciting stuff even just listening to his recordings it's clear that andrew bird our guest has been playing violin since four years of age, but his music is really more than his impeccable technique. Records like Mysterious Production of Eggs, Armchair Apocrypha, and yes, his brand new record, My Finest Work Yet, taps into a vibrant labyrinth inner world of heady emotion, uh, obscure reference and really brilliant songwriting is truly wonderful i was so glad to chat to him and across this incredible chat you and andrew work through almost his entire career in all of its elaborate glory you've got his first performances as a child playing violin seeing japanese noise rockers boredoms in his first concert which i am so insanely jealous of it was chicago was the metro which was an amazing venue all the way back in that was one of our best Ah. stories one of our Ah. best stories i love it you also talk about his time with the squirrel nut zippers you talk about building his own band all the way up through having released now more than 10 solo albums in two decades which is an incredible run And the best news is that we have an early taste of the album. If you haven't heard the song yet, you are in for a treat. 
uh, we have Sisyphus that we're going to play just before the interview, so stay tuned. And once you've heard the entire interview, leave us a note about it on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, all your social media at TMBTGPod. Better yet, leave us a best concert experience, your first concert experience as a story in the shape of a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, maybe, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can find us on Stitcher, on Spotify, anywhere. We'll shout you out if you leave us one of those reviews. This week, we have a special shout-out for someone going by the name Marga Littleface. (laughs) It all runs in together in one word. We have the best listeners. It's true. Thanks for the wonderful words of support, Margo Littleface. <laughs> Keep being awesome. Yeah, great. But let us not be delayed. Oh, I wish I could whistle. Do, 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 do. <laughs> I sound like Nardwar. Oh, that, yeah, that was just Nardwar. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm sorry, Andrew. I can never whistle like you. Here's us. Enjoy. Did he jump or did he fall as he gazed into the morning mist? Did he raise both fists and say to hell with this and jest? Let the rock roll. Let it blow, let it crash down low. There's a house down there, but I lost it long ago.
roll away It's got nothing to do with fate And everything to do with Thank you for calling so promptly on time. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's a tight schedule. <laughs> oh, yes, absolutely. It's kind of unnatural, the process, right? Because it isn't out there, and I suppose that's just an extension. Writing the songs and recording the songs and then taking it out on tour, all of those are kind of compartmentalized. You know, each of them lend a hand toward your music. So without that extra leg you know attached like the tour yeah. hasn't happened yet or the album hasn't come out yet i can imagine it feeling a little strange yeah i enjoy the the early stages of the writing process when things are not finished yet and i kind of like showing my work before it's finished i like mm. which is i don't think a lot of artists would say that yes <laughs> but, um i i just really enjoy when things are more fluid and and um, could go in any direction, and I, I wish could always be in that, that state. I, I kind of crave um, like dialogue as I'm working on it. Um, it. It doesn't feel right to have it all in my head until it comes out. Mm, you know? Right. What do you like about that fluidity and that uh, you know that it can change, and obviously listening to other people's interpretation of it, and or collaborating. What do you love about that, that process? It's a bit of a, a flush of embarrassment of showing something okay. for the first time when it's yes. happened. It's, there's a, uh, that's a rush. Embarrassment is a rush. <laughs> so the blood goes to the head. Um, and But I also like, even if it's, I'm not having like a um, comments box on the, on the way out of the, the theater, um, I still like, just the idea that there, there's a dialogue with the audience, that someone could say, yeah, I think you should go this way with it, or, you know, I'd probably bristle if I actually did get comments like that. Yeah. But, you know. yeah. but so I read that you started playing violin at a really young age. I'm not sure if that was right or that was just... Uh, yeah, when I was four. Okay. I mean, that's... Did you always have a sense that... Uh, you would be a musician or an artist of some kind? No. Um, it was just something that I did, you know, twice a week and, mm. and was relatively good at. Um, it didn't really kick kick in until... I mean, I was I was good and I was consistent at it until I was 14 or 15. And then, then, then I was like, you know, things aren't going well in, in high school. And, uh, and I'm like, well, I'm actually already pretty good at this so then I threw myself into it and it became this sort of romantic 
artistic struggle. Right. Master, master the instrument. Yeah. Were your parents musically inclined? How? Why did you pick that up when you were so young? What was the? No, no musicians in in the family for generations that I know of. Um, okay. But my mom is an artist. Uh, is a print artist, and she had this notion of her children playing classical music. So she she gets the credit for. Yeah. You know. <laughs> I mean, she was great. She it's a huge commitment. It's not like just send the kid off to totally. lessons. Totally. Mm. She had to learn violin with me, so there's solidarity. And so yeah, it just stuck with me. Uh, all my other siblings did it, but they didn't take to it. And you said that school wasn't really going right. Was that just because you just didn't fit into the academic life, or what was yeah, the? Yeah, there's, there's that. I tested right. really poorly. They thought I was. Um, uh, that I had learning disabilities, and my <clears throat> my oldest brother is autistic, so I thought I was following in his. Uh, yeah, I thought I had late onset autism, and yeah, just general awkwardness and shyness, and and uh, yeah, you know, mm. I, I, a lot of people could say they had a rough go of it at those years. Was music then playing in your house? Was that anything that was really around you? Because you mentioned, obviously, that there weren't any musicians, but you it seems like you had a lot of support from your family. So yeah. was music around the house then when you were young? You know, my mom played classical music. My dad played country music. Oh, right, okay. On the stereo. So there was the kind of high-brow, high low-brow um, thing going on. And But in general, my, my family was... a sanctuary from the the world and and so then music became as well i know that you also obviously started young with performing as well because I, I suppose that comes hand in hand with classical music uh you know you land up performing in recitals and yeah all of that sort of thing so were those like really early performances when you had to get up on stage in front of a bunch of strangers how how much of that do you remember because I find it so interesting just the concept of you know putting kids in front of something which I suppose when you're young you don't really feel that nervousness because you don't know what you know, you you don't you don't have the wisdom of knowing how potentially scary it could be. Yeah, I didn't really have a. I don't remember being having any stage fright whatsoever. In fact, when I would get in front of, I would be very shy and awkward and um, and anxious. But as soon as I would get in front of an audience, I would feel calm. Oh wow! Yeah, I, I was grew up on the North Shore of Chicago, which was you know a lot of you know prodigies being cultivated. I just remember around me there being these these five and six year old kids that, that could play these incredibly difficult, you know, Tchaikovsky violin concerto and and it, it, there was this culture around it of, of like, oh, isn't this extraordinary? Like mm. this there was a lot of talk of like giftedness and genius and all this stuff. And it was all kind of side. It was like just kind of a circus, you know. What, just exploitative or? or... Uh, uh, yeah. Yeah. I, and I think my mom sensed that and she protected me from that. Like there were, there was like a, a, a husband and wife teacher combo that would take these kids and turn them into, um, you know, that thing. And um, they wanted, they wanted to t take me as a student and she resisted. She mm. tried to keep it, you know, not too heavy. Um, for me, because it, it was a very competitive 
environment. I wonder why it's like that, especially I live in Chicago now. I just moved a few years ago. I suppose that's all over the world, but um, mm-hmm. there's so many opportunities in the States for anybody really to make it on a national scale um, if you push yeah. hard enough. So that's so interesting that that I kind of, yeah. I don't think it's that. Um, they like to say like, look, it's magical. Yeah. Like they're, they're gifted. <laughs> yes. And it's like, no, a child has a tremendous amount of room in their brain to, right. to, and they're soaking, they're soaking it up like language mm. at that age. So they can do extraordinary things and it's, but it's, they're being coached super hard and uh, it doesn't tend to go so well for them, you know? Um, but I don't understand in our culture why there's that, that like, we, we don't want to believe that it's actually hard work or time. We want to believe that it's this magical Make thing. it, make it think, get onto TV. I think I was speaking to somebody the other day and they mentioned a very big pop star and they mentioned how they grew up just looking at cereal boxes, you know, on the cereal box would be an advertisement of the star search or something like that. And obviously in my culture, there was nothing like that in South Africa, just because, you know, you, you can't, you, you can't really... You have to work. You have to. You have to mm-hmm. hustle. But I wonder how it is now for kids, especially with everything going on and how readily available and accessible people and things are. You know, not only you can find out about something within two minutes, but also you can probably gain a lot of popularity just by having like a YouTube channel, you know, and just chatting. Which is there's nothing wrong with that. It's relatable to kids. But I think that's interesting. How that shifted? Yeah, I think that's um, that's probably similar to being a prodigy, um, mm. and that you you can burn out early. Mm. I mean, how can you ever match that peak of playing with an orchestra, playing Tchaikovsky with an orchestra when you're six? You know? mm. Yeah, right. Um, and then it's then you got a long life ahead of you. Where does it go from there? So yeah. so so when your mom obviously noticed that things were, you know, she wanted to make sure that you were happy and, and almost in, in essence safe um, and really just harnessing your your talent and discipline. What, what was the first concert then that you landed up seeing? Was was it something from your peers at school or was it did you actually get to go and see someone perform live? We didn't go to that many. I would, we would go to Ravinia sometimes, and I worked there when I was in high school, and I would oh, see okay. concerts there. But so it was mostly in the classical vein. Even through high school, and you know, in excess would play, and everyone would have that T-shirt the next day. <laughs> yeah. Um, or, you know, I would notice that, but I wasn't. It never occurred to me that I would go to one of those concerts. And it wasn't until my, my first rock and roll concert was. Uh, wasn't until I was maybe 19 or 20 I saw the Boredoms at the Metro. Mm. Wow. Which is this Japanese noise band. Um, and pretty theatrical, though. And so that was, that made a huge impression on me. It was, it was this crazy show where the band was on stage and then they're just sitting there and there's two drummers. Um, one is this giant guy and then one is, um, this very small Japanese woman and this frequency starts building up in the speakers like from very low and getting louder and higher and and building anticipation and then the singer runs out with 
the microphone in his mouth, and <laughs> he has those like sunbathing blinders on, yeah, from burning your eyes or whatever. So he's, I think, effectively blind, and he just mm-hmm. jumps right into the into the crowd. Oh my gosh! Um, before anything happens, <laughs> there's this anticipation, and then there's this, you know. Uh, he goes full. He attacks. Throttle. Yeah. Are you talking about, I think his surname is I? I can't remember his yeah, name. Yeah, I must look it up. I. Yes. Yeah. Um, That's amazing. So then once I was, you know, I was at Northwestern and I was, I was into all sorts of stuff. I would go down to like the Jazz Showcase and what, and see, you know, Elvin Jones and mm. um, all these great jazz players. I definitely... As soon as I was close to Chicago, you know, went to as many great shows as I could. But I wasn't, still wasn't particularly into pop music per se. Like I would be pulled out. I would, friends would take me to the shows, but I, w- I was still into more fancy music <laughs> than uh, than the sort of indie rock or. Right. You know. I remember seeing Pavement, and mm. you know, uh, I would go to Lounge Acts a lot, and I. I, I Honestly, for the first few years, I didn't really get it. I mean, it, it, you can tell by the music that you make. I like that you call it fancy music. Um, not necessarily your own, but the things that you liked. <laughs> what, yeah. what made it? Is it just because it was technically much more advanced than uh, what you were used to? Something where you really appreciated the technical aspect of it. And obviously the performance style was totally unique as well. Yeah, I mean, I was... So a typical week for me when I was 20 or 21 would be I'd be in an orchestra during the week playing Shostakovich or Mahler. And then on Sundays, I would go to the Abbey Pub and play Irish sessions. And then all the while, I'd be transcribing like a John Coltrane solo for my ethnomusicology jazz class. Oh, wow. But I was still learn. I still was... Even as complicated as the music would get, I would still do it all by ear. Mm, mm. I didn't. I could read, but I didn't enjoy reading. So I would just soak it up as much as I could by ear. That Irish session or whatever on on Sundays was drinking Guinness and kind of sharing <laughs> tunes, and um, it was kind of a good antidote to the um, rather uptight atmosphere of the of orchestra. The yeah, and, but yeah. the. You know, it was whether it was Strauss or an Irish tune or Coltrane, it was all. I didn't really distinguish that much in mm. the way mm. I approached it. It took me a while to realize, like, to, to understand where in the mid '90s Chicago indie rock, what what the sort of DIY punk ethos was really all about but once i did eventually get it and appreciate it you moved toward that as well yeah yeah that's interesting you studied performance in college as well right or or were you yes, just, I just okay violin performance okay um, which sounds pretty specific <laughs> it does but how much of that experience and also you mentioned jazz ethnomusicology which is fascinating as well just uh, on mm. its own really but how much of that experience then do you still rely on today what sort of i suppose i'm just wondering what sort of things you were exposed to that allowed you to really pursue a career as a full-time musician as well or is it completely 
separate? I, it's, I, mean, I don't know if I'm answering it, but I'll just say this. I was, when I was in, in music school, I was not the, you know, the ideal student. I never really was. Mm. And I was kind of pushing back against my teachers a bit. And, and I could see that if I did what was expected of me, I might not be able to make, make a go of it. Mm. You know, if I followed in the path of what institution was, uh, was suggesting that I, I, I could see the, it, it just not, uh, at some point I just, I just had to, as soon as I got out of uh, music school, I was like, oh, that, that's not that hard. I understand how this works. And they were just, yeah. it made such a fuss, you know. I was never, I always resisted methodology and pedagogy. Um, mm. And I think that served me in the end. I don't, in that I'm still just kind of go by intuition and my writing, it's just a, it's, it's not a, a verse chorus kind of method. It's, it's, um, I'm just always just grasping in the dark for things. What what made eventually made sense to me about the more of the indie scene and trying to write a, a good pop song mm. um, was you know all my people around me in the, in the arts, they, whether they're in theater or, or whatever, or visual artists who are waiting for someone to tap them and say, okay, you're good. You're, you're, you're in now. You're in. Yeah. Uh, you're going around with your headshots to hoping that waiting for someone to say, uh, okay, you're good. And I realized that was never going to happen. And maybe I didn't even want it to happen. Like, so you just have to make your own book, your own show and, and make your own poster and go around town on your bike and put up posters and, mm. and conceive of the whole album and the artwork and the whole picture, the whole package. Mm-hmm. And that was in my 20s in Chicago. That's what I was um, figuring out. Eventually. Yeah. But I mean, even your first recordings, you know, you, you mentioned like grasping in the dark and obviously resisting methods and methodology and format like that. But your first recordings work on so many different genres and pockets of genres, you know, within uh, music of hair as well as your work with squirrel nut zippers is there's so much there and even you know listening to your latest album as well uh which i love the title my finest work yet very very bold <laughs> very bold title i really like it so how did you approach that in terms of i suppose you know each genre and giving it their its due or was it just about finding emotion for a melody, for your feeling, for the song? Like, how much of it was really where you sat down and thought, I need to technically, you know, think about mashing all these genres together in the best possible way? It was just completely authentic and natural to you. Yeah, I mean, before I really figured it out, I like Music of Hair, for instance, is, is partitioned, like, into three segments mm-hmm. that were into the three main things that I was into. Because... I didn't know what I was doing. I was just thinking, oh, I'm going to try to make a living as a musician. I should have this almost like a demo Mm-mm. record of all the things that I can do. Then I kind of got uh, swept up in the, the early jazz, early 20th century kind of thing for the first couple of Bowl of Fire records. And then, you know, at around age 26 or 27, I, I, I look at those records and that, period as being I was still a student you know 
I still would walk into record stores and think, what can I learn from from these records? Mm. What can I incorporate into my into what I'm doing? How can I make it my own? But you know, it was still I was still working off the textbook of my favorite records. Right. What What and, were your favorite records in at that time? Oh man, it was so. Or still, maybe now even. It was kind of all over the place, but at that time it was like I was very into like. Anglo-Irish folk music, Watterson Carthy, mm. Nick Drake, and there was that thing. And then there was sort of the early jazz, Django, hot jazz kind of thing I was into. I was into Latin music, uh, Afro-Cuban. I was just into so much different stuff. It was it was throwing myself into a different thing every Week. But I love that. I feel like as a as a musician, there's something special about find uh, you know hearing that you were a fan amongst it all as well. You know, there's yeah. so so often those two things are never really mentioned. You you can assume somebody is a fan of the art or the uh, discipline that they are a part of, but the fact that it sounds like you. Uh, were inspired a lot, not necessarily to to replicate the sounds, but really just to, as you said, grasp into the darkness. I really like that line um, for your own work. I think that's really fascinating. Yeah. Um, it was just, you know, when you first start putting records out into the world, you can you start to realize, oh, I could possibly create expectations or paint myself into a corner with some of these stylistic references. So... The turning point was a little bit with what swimming hour, but weather systems was kind of the mm. the real absolutely re- rethinking of how I was how I was soaking things up and and processing them, and yeah, I think weather systems was more of like a a natural amalgam of all these things. Um, without being any one thing. Because mm, your songs always have that history of self-reference, adaptation, and uh, almost intertextuality. You know, there, there's that uh, there's that idea, you know, that you're constantly working at it as opposed to against it or for it, you know. <laughs> it, yeah. feels, it feels like it's next to, next to you. But so was that a part of your writing like, what inspired that inward look? I wasn't thinking I need to do this. It was, it was all, it all it coincides with a major shift in geography. Like, I moved out of Chicago and fixed up an old barn in western Illinois and, and thought I was going to bring my band out to record the next record in my own studio. You know, what you're usually working towards is like, I'm going to have my own studio and um, be able to work anytime. Mm. And it didn't really work out that way. Like none of my friends, my, my band, no one had car, a car, <laughs> so they yeah. couldn't come out. It was just a, a, a logistical issue. So I was out there for weeks on end, and I started doing the looping thing, and I started experimenting with with my environment, with what I was seeing, and how that effect, affected the my phrasing, and how my phrasing affected what I was seeing being out in the country and uh and i didn't bring any records with me when i moved out there i i well that's not true i had two records i had uh lowe's trust and <laughs> amazing the kinks uh preservation green oh wow i love the kinks 
Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So those those Amazing. two records, um, one was very sad and minimalistic, and one yeah. was kind of upbeat and dense songwriting. And mostly it was I was in a deprivation chamber of sorts. I didn't realize that that's what I really needed was to deprive myself of all my friends' record collections and my own record collection to see what was really going on in there. Yeah, just to strip it away. And when I said yeah. inward, of course, it's juxtaposed by some incredibly eloquent diction, you know, as well as you've got some references to such a diverse swath of culture and mythology. And so when you when you took everything away and you moved away, uh, mm-hmm. I, I love, you know, obviously mentioning that it was geography of it all. But did that inspiration strike from the fact that you had taken yourself away or did you have to actively sit and search and create a almost extension of, of who you have been? I think I just had to cut out the noise to find out what um, what kind of music I was really hearing. With uh, the lyric writing, it's just there were fewer distractions. I, I, mm. I could go into these internal conversations and just sometimes just desperately trying to entertain yourself um yeah it was it was very intense solitude um which uh I, it could only last so long i couldn't really it wasn't healthy but I, I did form this like very direct pipeline between experimenting with what i was working on and going straight to a stage to play it like there was i was playing solo living in a barn by myself and I was oh my going off in my in my van with my amps and going you know from town to town doing everything myself like loading in loading out doing merch talking to people and it was it was a pretty intense period I, I kept thinking I got to be doing some damage to myself here yeah. <laughs> not only is this like socially uh warping isolating <laughs> yeah 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 I can imagine, as you said, you know, that can really do a number on you. But I, I also can imagine that teaches you uh, humility of being a touring artist as well, as opposed to having everything just done for you. Of course, it speaks to a lot of self-control and having control to maybe too much. So how has that really changed and shifted over the years? From that period on, like, I kind of slowly assimilated back into a normal community some degree but still you know the the alienation feeling of being only communicating with people when you're on stage Mm. uh or in interviews and not and always being out of town and coming back and being disconnected from friends uh that continued through like years of being in chicago that it got so intense like up to around noble beast and i was playing over 200 shows a year and I was sick all the time and I was just like um, really not well (laughs) in both physically and mentally and I was thinking about like okay I think I've tipped the scale a little too far Um, you know it starts for a while it feeds you and then and then it crosses over and it starts sucking you dry and you start thinking about like how am I how am I living you know when you're open to criticism for your the of work course. you're doing and it's like it's completely consumed you so it's so personal there there is a period there where I, where it got pretty critical and then I 
think I pulled it back together. Yeah, because I suppose uh, feeling live as well, it's a, a feeling live, feeling uh, like you're playing live all the time mm. is also really difficult to, to open yourself up to not only criticism, but just that energy, you know, uh, yeah. emanating from a crowd no matter whether it's positive or negative, it's still something. And the, yeah. you know, how the dichotomy of having that crazy uh, moment of performing live versus being quiet in your bedroom moments later yeah. is really difficult to balance. How did you notice that you were kind of going down a path that felt like it was detrimental to your physical and mental health? How did you stop that and notice? Because it's difficult when you're so in it. Uh, especially after playing so many shows, you said two hundred or something, for you know, in a in a short amount of time. So how did you really yank yourself back from falling over? I don't know. I I I've came back from from a tour of Asia of playing China and Japan, and I didn't want to go back to Chicago, and I just stopped in in Los Angeles and rented a place from a friend and in Venice and I just kind of uh, decompressed for about six months and going clean a little bit. Yeah, I just had to, I don't know, I don't know. I just, I feel way more healthy now and I think it has to do with just, you know, meeting my wife and starting a family and, mm. and just better life balance. Yeah, and having, yeah. A, having that support, absolutely. I'm so, I yeah. mean, thank you for sharing that. You know, I don't take any of that lightly. I suppose it's very, you have to be very gentle towards yourself now and also who you were in the past because that's informed who you have become. But obviously when you're performing live as well, you, you always have these giant horns, you know, some mm. of which... <laughs> spin to produce that sort of Doppler effect and you've got mm. all these things going on and your loop pedals. So how involved going going forward now with my finest work yet, which is coming out when is that coming out? Next is it next, next week? Friday. Next yeah. Friday already. Uh well when this episode goes out it'll be in a few days time friday so what what sort of technology or change in 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 the makeup of the live performance are you working on for this particular set of songs well i mean i i, I can play every one of these songs with just a guitar which is the first yes for me there's no crazy looping necessary to and i've already done a couple like i did an in-store at rough trade Okay. In London, it was like totally. I'm like, hey, I'm just a songwriter through the door with a guitar for once. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. There's no bells and whistles or crazy horns. But that being said, you know, for the live show, I've got a lot of new elements. Like we've got the acoustic piano and this wonderful player Tyler Chester, and and the song. the The record has a, you know, that sound throughout, which is a new element. I've got. Madison Cunningham, who's just a phenomenal singer and songwriter, you know, singing with me. Feels like very soulful stuff to sing, you know. It's I just wanna write songs now that I can get to that place that I enjoy on stage of like just being totally it's a feeling of just connectedness when mm. you're when it's really going right. Um and what I really enjoy about performing. And it's just when 
everything's resonating and connecting, and there's nothing like it. And it doesn't require. Um, I mean, we with the previous bands like playing with Martin Dosh, it, it it we went to the limits of complexity as far as like yeah. looping and thinking yeah. drums with loops and sending my signal around to different instruments on stage. And uh, this record, for the most part, is as a guy singing with a guitar with a band. Um, oh, but, like yeah, no, this is so ahead, much more. Say, but, yeah. <laughs> um, I don't want to give the impression that it's just like middle of the road, you know. It's a shift for sure. And I feel like that simplicity weirdly has created quite complex moments along the album. You know, there's a mm-hmm. lot of there's a lot of times when it's more orchestral and those instruments, you just let it kind of breathe. Uh, mm-hmm. in, in in your songs are you know some songs are like bloodless I think mm-hmm. is you know it's 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 past the three minute four minute mark and you you repeat it later in the album manifest is is a great track an example of mm-hmm. that I feel and when I read the bio I I was interested in what you were speaking about but you sound lighter which maybe it's strange because you may have written it when you were heavier, but you definitely sound, and I'm not talking about the lack of all those gadgets and things that you used to yeah. use, um, but you, your spirit sounds lighter, which is maybe a strange thing to say. Yeah, no, I, I don't I know if that's agree. accurate. I, I've just done a little, I did a little run over to, to Paris and London and talking mm-hmm. about the record is just so much, I don't know, it's just easier to to talk about and to as, as heavy as some of these subjects are you know the the previous record got really dark too and I didn't enjoy talking about that I kind of realized why some people don't like talking about their songs it, when they're when they get very personal and it, I've, I've known that from the first record I made there's whenever I write a song about someone that's not me Right. You feel dirty. You feel like you might be exploiting that mm. for mm. in this. Yeah. It's fine when you're doing it for an audience, but um, when it gets into a larger forum, it feels like a, a not a very pure exchange going on. And I just wrote the songs this time that for their results of being alive at this time. It's not, um, there wasn't any directive per se, but... Yeah, but it still sounds like you, which is something you know. There's there's that whole talk behind signature sound and an artist yeah. keeping to them, you know, to to what they know. But there's something, as I said, really, really, it really breathes and it does feel this like the spirit is lighter. But mm-hmm. I love and I love that you titled the album as you did because it kind of disconnects to the whole. When you listen, you're not so focused on the title of the album as you are, you know, the technical side of the actual songwriting, right. you know, it doesn't, yeah. it doesn't get in the way. And I really like that you, you called it that. And I'm sure you've been asked loads of times why you committed to that title. But I think what I'm more interested in is, you know, why has it taken so long, I suppose, <laughs> for you to, you know, because it kind of, it's obviously, I'm sure you feel committed to the title as well mm-hmm. or did you just i'm overthinking it and you're like leo mm-hmm. this is you know i, 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 just I went to <laughs> over a hundred possible titles oh really they all, yeah. they all seemed incredibly lame to me at, at like yeah. record number 14 you you keep naming here's another body of work i'm I gotta give it a name and it just seems 
like, oh, another poetic thing that's trying to encapsulate everything you're talking Absolutely. about. Yeah, yeah. And um, it just became so, just felt so tired. And and I had this working title, uh, My Finest Work Yet, is just sort of an inside joke um, between me and myself or me and the my manager or people that I share music with first. Um, mm. And so I just have to call it something and I just a way of just poking fun at this whole endeavor. And it's really, it kind of came back after I was just gave up on, on something that had to have like, you know, encapsulate four years of struggle and work, you know? Um, and, uh, I was like, yeah, that's it. I still haven't quite figured out how to, how to play it mm, yeah. <laughs> in interviews. A lot of people are like, so is this your finest is, work yet? Yeah, that's what I can imagine you're getting. Like, it's not that you're saying it's your finest work yet. It just sounds, no. it's, which I feel like it, it might as well be, but it sounds very tongue-in-cheek, um, which is kind of a nice, light-hearted way of looking at your, yourself. And I, I think that harkens back to you mentioning how enlivened you felt in the beginning by sharing songs when, you know, it made you embarrassed and you like yeah. that. I like titles that have multiple interpretations. Sure. This one can, can be taken in so many ways. And those who get the joke, um, get the joke. Those who don't, they're subject to power suggestion. <laughs> and I'd be like, well, maybe it is actually the science work yet. Yeah. But I just feel like after, record number 14, like, who am I kidding? Like, it's crazy. It's, it's uh, anyway, haven't I? Don't have the right at this point to have some fun with the whole business. You know, it gets so damn serious. Yeah, and and it, it, so so how do you going forward? How do you feel like you are prepped to have this out there in the world? Like, what are you what are you gonna do in the live setup? Because I know you just mentioned you went to Paris oh, yeah. and London. So what what are you gonna do to to make yourself feel? like you're having the most fun while doing this crazy job that can easily consume you, you know? I don't know, man. I just did a couple of shows at Largo where we play the whole record down. And uh, it's it it's definitely songs that feed me, you know? They're not overwritten and they're not boxing me in and that's, mm. that's all I could hope for. That's, that's totally my goal when I'm writing now because... I think about this being on stage when I write. Like I think about the next two and a half years of doing hundreds of shows of this material, and I know well enough now, like what kind of song has the longest shelf life. Yes. And I know well enough. That, yeah, I, I experimented early on with like lightness and dark and the contrast of lyrics against music, and and I just. I just follow my impulses musically and with melody and texture purely for the enjoyment of those things. Mm, and then mm. let the lyrics fall on top of it. And sometimes it, it, it can seem even more sinister the more upbeat it is. You know yeah. what I mean? Uh, <laughs> like you're, yeah. you know, you're seething through your grin a little bit. That's always been more interesting and more powerful to me than than rage on rage
This Must Be The Gig is produced by Adam Kibble and we'd like to thank Billy Yost and the Kickback for our theme song, Rube, and buy their music at thekickbackband.com. Lexi Frame for the artwork, Daniel Brater and Dean Berger for the additional sound design, and the Consequence Podcast Network where you'll find a bunch of other amazing shows. listened this far why not go the extra mile and leave us a review on apple podcasts or wherever you find your podcasts your comments provide valuable feedback for us and it helps other people find us too for information on new episodes be sure to follow us on facebook twitter or instagram at tmptgpod and generally just irritate everyone you know about the show thanks again and i miss you already Consequence Podcast Network.